Hi, Raghu, back with Mind Rolling. And I'm with a brand new guest. And happy to meet you, Humble the Poet, otherwise known as Kanwar Singh. And uh, we are both from Toronto, right? We just found that out. Yes. Yeah, what part of Toronto were you born? Who knows? I left there when I was six months old. Uh, oh, okay. It was St. Michael's Hospital somewhere. Okay, right, you're right in the middle. Yeah, right in the middle. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so Humble the Poet has a, a wonderful book out called Unlearn, 101 Simple Truths for a Better Life. And I love the way you get these things into nuggets, right? It's like yeah. very direct, and it's uh, in our time of distraction, it works perfectly. Here's the uh, cover, everybody. Yes, uh, I used to be a third grade school teacher, so uh, trying to keep an eight-year-old's attention uh, was this a talent and skill that I slowly acquired. And I figured if you can explain it to an eight-year-old, you can explain it to anybody. That's <laughs> highly advisable, yes. Yeah. Uh, oh, well, tell us about that. You were teaching yeah. school, right? I was, yeah, I was teaching elementary school. Yeah, born and raised in Toronto. Uh, one of the things was my parents really put a, a big focus on education. My father uh, had a master's degree back in uh, India. Uh, he went to University of Jaipur in Rajasthan. And uh, when he came wow. over here, he couldn't you know, get the equivalency of his education because he had already gotten married and was starting a family. So he drove a cab. But, you know, he was still a big academic at heart and, you know, the best that he could. And he always stressed to us education. And I think it really helped me develop a level of learning and mm -hmm. realizing that, hey, the only way life is going to continually be stimulating for me is if I put myself in situations where, you know, no two days are the same. Uh, I'm always learning new things. I'm always encountering new challenges and bettering myself. And uh, that path led me into the world of education and becoming an elementary school teacher. Mm. Uh, and working with super young children. And uh, while I was doing that, uh, I discovered my uh, artistic inklings as well. But uh, working with the young children really helped me realize how much of an empty vessel we are kind of coming into this world and how quickly our habits and who we are start to form and crystallize to a point that we begin to believe that they've always been a part of us. Mm, yeah. And when you work with a bunch of really young children, you realize like, no, we, we all came in here empty. And, you know, we can return back to any of those essences as long as we spend more time letting go than acquiring. Like a lifetime. Yes. <laughs> like a lifetime. <laughs> oh, boy, that's good. And, uh, but, so your family is from India? And yeah, so from they're, they're Punjabi. Punjabi. Uh, my, yeah, so my, they're Punjabi, but my father uh, was born in Rajasthan. Um, I think they, his family found some land out there in their village. Uh, was in Rajasthan for a few generations. Mm. Yeah. I've been going there fairly regularly myself to Rajasthan. Oh. I mean, I go to India every year because yeah. I've been doing that uh, after meeting Ramdas. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, Rajasthan, I'm getting to know it quite well. It's, it's, it's a beautiful they, place. Yeah, beautiful place. And by the way, anybody who wants to go there, go there in January, February, is it, to the camel market? It's like unbelievable. Yeah, wow. It's a, I just saw a documentary on that recently. Oh, yeah? It's beautiful. Yeah. Do you remember what it's called? Um, it might be called the camel market. It's just where everybody comes to either, you know, trade and sell their camels, but at the same time, they're all beautifully decorated and uh, 
you know, shaved and it's just a, a, a wonderful spectacle. Incredible music. Yeah. Rajasthani folk music, uh, which has both the folk, but uh, also the devotional aspect as most Indian music does. And so, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. Okay. Let's find that you guys that are going to put these beautiful links like to, uh, to humble the poets book and everything else we're going to talk about here. Let's find out about the camel market doc. Okay. Yes. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, all right, so next, uh, after, just to get an idea, what, you know, the kinds of things that help wake you, I mean, you come from an awoken culture, basically, compared to what I consider what I had to go through, and, yeah. uh, but at, I'm sure at some point, some stuff started to make sense in a way that you could even feel it could come through, through you as an expression, so, yeah, how did that all happen for you? Um, I think you, you you hit it on the head right there. You said coming from an awoken culture. I think, you know, things become cliches for a reason, even if they're good advice. Sometimes you hear it so much, they lose meaning, even if they hold true. And I grew up, you know, uh, a Sikh heritage, which is definitely, you know, heavily inspired of Eastern philosophy. And, you know, Eastern philosophy is, you know, very cyclical, you know, versus many of the philosophies out in the West, which are very linear. So, you know, understanding life as you know, the seasons and understanding that we have our own personal winters and summers and springs and falls and understanding our internal universe, you know, in relation to our external universe and how sometimes feeding one won't always connect to the other. Uh, These are things that I was always raised to to understand, but always, you know, as a child thought how everybody kind of saw the world. And then slowly but surely, as I got a little bit older and started interacting with, you know, other people, realizing that they all had very different priorities and as a as a child or even you know as a teenager somebody who's gravitating towards immediate gratification i always viewed their lives as much more exciting you know Mm. new year's parties for new year's parties for christmas you know wedding parties and my parents weren't really doing that it was a combination of them on their own spiritual journey but also not more my father he used to drink and then he kind of gave up cold turkey you know, within a month or two and, and pursued a life uh, uh, in sick heritage. And I think the the challenges that his old drinking buddies presented in terms of just trying to, they, they felt attacked that he made that life choice. Mm, wow. And, you know, so they, you know, they'd get drunk if he showed up to a family party and, you know, they would kind of rag on him. And I don't think he appreciated that. So we eventually stopped going to parties. I don't think my parents were against the idea of having fun. I think they just realized they no longer kind of fit in with the rest of the crowd and my uncles and aunts and everybody else. So, mm. and I'm the youngest in my, in my family. So my, my older sisters both have memories of, you know, big house parties, watching Hindi movies on TV, everyone dancing in the house. And then by the time I came around, it got very quiet. We were having more meditation circles. Oh, really? Uh, you know, singing hymns, having different wise men come over and, and you know, doing service to them. And, uh, me looking at the other side, you know, wishing I was at the party, wishing I was playing outside with my friends instead of sitting there, not really kind of getting it. And it probably wasn't until, you know, my late teens when I started to kind of own all this, all these tools on the belt that I didn't appreciate and started to realize the challenges that come in, in a Sikh history, you know, um, Sikh heritage specifically, you know, uh, we have Konkrod, Lob Mohankar, which is, you know, your lust, greed, anger, attachment, and ego. Uh, and I was raised, when I was a child, I was raised to be told that these are sins. And I think the older I got, I started to realize 
it's more so that hey, these things are really going to get in the way of your, you know, your your inner peace and life, and yeah. they're not necessarily the devil, but you know, and, and really, you're necessarily- I mean, well, they were considering it to be in that kind of Christian way, huh? Um, yeah, well, I, I mean, especially you know when the British came to India, they did they did quite a Damn number Brits. on. Uh, yeah, they, they did quite a number of reappropriating, you know, everybody's faith to kind of fit into their box. So, you know, and they kind of were like, you know, my mother, the interesting thing is like Sikh heritage, when it, when it refers to the, the, the creator or the creation or, 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 or the, the one entity or what often people call God, you know, and, and, and Sikhi, you know, is referred to as everywhere, everywhere and everything, you know, like the code in the matrix. But I know very often I hear my mother referring to God as Oparada, which is the one up, the one up there, and that's wow. a very Christian idea, yeah. you know, God in the sky. Yeah. And I was, you know, trying to go back to the heritage, like, oh yeah, well, you know, they were in control of the region for about ninety years, and they really kind of infused their ideas. And I don't know if it was forced assimilation or just simply having a conversation with somebody and saying, hey, who's your God, and then trying to figure it out and packaging it in a way they understood. So. Uh, yeah, it was very dogmatic and it was very, this is right, this is wrong. And it took me, you know, to become an adult to kind of figure out that, hey, things aren't going to be so absolute. And mm. definitely, you know, th- those five things may be considered vices, but they're also things that can hinder your ability to have some peace and stability in your life and be mindful and aware of them more so than anything, because there, are, there aren't really many living people out there that are completely immune to them. And grounding myself in something a little bit more pragmatic, so I didn't kind of feel like I wasn't good enough because I wasn't a, a holy saint with a halo behind my head, free <laughs> of all human desires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and that really kind of got me excited when I was kind of able to uh, explore these ideas by myself. But at the same time, kind of what my parents force fed me gave me that foundation. It's like when your parents forced you to play the piano, you didn't want to do it. But now you're an adult and now, now you got that musical foundation to explore yourself. So I appreciate them for it. And, you know, that got me reading the Bible, that got me reading uh, other sacred texts and, and recognizing their value, even as cultural impact. Mm. Uh, you know, whether you believe in them or not, they impacted the way our society is shaped. And it's important to understand them so we can better understand our society. Yeah. And ourselves. Yeah. Um, oh, OK. Give us that list one by one. Kam, Krod, Moholo. OK, go ahead. Any- so calm. So calm is your lust. So calm, krod, lob, mohankar. So calm is your lust. Krod would be your anger. Calm, krod, lob. Lob would be your greed. Uh, mo would be your attachment, and hankar would be your ego. Uh-huh. Hankar. Yeah. yeah. When when and, uh, yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. So like, there's just analogies that say you know, kind of like your hankar, your ego is you know the size of an elephant. And the path to salvation is the size of a mustard seed, right? And right. It's that, that kind of idea that, you know, these are the things we have to let go. So the idea of letting go is very important. And coming over to, you know, the Western society is much more about acquiring, you know, gaining more. And, uh, you know, really trying to come to terms with both of those and make sense of them in my own personal life. Because I had one foot in, in both worlds. Yeah, yeah. Um, and those things... All of those things, which the Buddhists would would call defilements, uh, mm-hmm. and they have like a hundred and thirty thousand of them, or something. <laughs> they get <laughs> into they get into subtle detail of yeah, getting to know yourself. Uh, yeah. But those, uh, I mean, the reality is, 
finding a way to create enough spaciousness in your life around each one of these things so you have a, you know that's why mindfulness and awareness practices are so important because then you can have the awareness and you see this thing arising i just went through a whole thing uh, recently on a podcast with a buddhist psychiatrist and we we did a whole thing around one of mine which would be uh, around anger and mm. we really went through the details of it and and his advice was instead of running from it instead of all the things we do to just bury it, bury whatever that thing is. Uh, he said, get intimate w- with it, get intimate, just hang with it, be with it, you know, and, and with awareness, the, the rising of that, it doesn't go completely out of control, which with anger that happens, of course. So, yeah. So each one of these things, right. Isn't it right? Each one of these things is something for us to work on with, with mindfulness and see where we're at and see the ways in which we get stuck like glue to it. I think you're absolutely correct. And I think, you know, um, again, I was a prepubescent nine-year-old being told about the evils of lust and, and, and I'm still thinking girls have cooties and not understanding why any of this is important for me, but you know, it, at some point in my life, you know, the idea that, hey, you know, pursuing short-term gratification constantly is, is going to hurt, you know, cause me challenges in the long run, you know, that definitely, you know, those lessons from childhood kind of revisited me when I had those experiences. And mm. I think, and as you said, I think they are great uh, tent poles in, in creating our, our space of self-awareness. I think the overarching idea and pill that we all need to be, be taking every single morning is that of self-awareness and being like, well, what is my relationship with my anger? What is my relationship with my attachments? You know, who or what am I attached to uh, externally and internally? And who would I be without those? And what are times that some of my attachments were, you know, ripped away from me? You know, whether it was my status, whether it was somebody I was in love with, whether it was a family member, whether it was a certain identity or a belief, you know, all these things that we hold near and dear. And then one day we may not have even divorced them ourselves, but, you know, life came and just snatched them away. And we were sitting there trying to figure out our new identity yeah. without these certain attachments. And yeah. I think everybody can, everybody already has that story in, in them. And it's just about asking the right questions to, to revisit them and find value in them and, and no longer look at them simply as traumatic experiences. Yeah. That's what I aim to do with the book. Mm. And good job, too. I like what's in Thank there. Thank you. Uh, then you left the job as a teacher to become a rap singer. Uh, yeah. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> uh, one day, you know, I was a student my entire life. And, you know, you go to class, come back and have homework and have to get the assignments and essays and whatever other tasks they had for you to get done and then all of a sudden I was working a job my first real career you know I'd never had a, a salary job before and the it was a, it was a very odd experience for me being like oh you know we, we clock out at 3 4 p.m and I can go home and what do I do I don't really you know I can get ahead of my work and plan a lesson plan but like what do adults do and <laughs> you start to realize that hey some of them go to the bar some of them you know some of them walk in the park some of them raise their kids it's like it's just different things that i never had to do as a student and i looked at all of that i mean i was, I was in my early 20s and i was like this is all a waste so i got a second job as a, as a tutor and i used to tutor kids uh in, in affluent neighborhoods i used to be a math tutor high school kids and i made i made some really great money tutoring these kids <laughs> and 
I used that money to kind of, you know, buy buy things that were out of a teacher's uh, tax bracket. And I was really enjoying this life of living at home, living rent free, driving a nice car, wasting money on a lot of dumb things. So I was making like an extra like fifteen hundred dollars a month tutoring kids. And I went to a concert once and I saw a spoken word artist and he just he performed and blew me away. And I think it definitely hit me on a deeper level, but superficially, I was like, wow, that must be a great way to meet girls. <laughs> and, I want, and I really want to get into this. Yeah, and right. I had been writing. I, there, there, was a, there was a history and pattern of me being uh, somebody in the literary arts without me realizing it. I, I loved writing. Back in high school, I'd be writing poems for my friends to give to their girlfriends on Valentine's Day. And I'd be doing creative projects that way. So I took a stab at it, stab at it and I performed in a, a coffee shop at a you know, at a five person spoken word competition and I won <laughs> and you know, that, that was enough to feed the ego to keep me going. And then one day I decided to, you know, wanting to add some music in the background for ambiance. And then I found myself falling onto the rhythm of the, of the music and poetry and rhythm. That's what hip hop music is. And, you know, hip hop was, was the music I grew up listening to and, and helping me find my own identity. So I got into rap and I was doing it for fun. I really was just doing it for a great way to meet people you know, to have cool experiences. And I never thought it would, anything would come from it. And I spent one summer in, in, in the Bay in California living with a, another guy who was a full-time rapper and falling in love with the lifestyle he had. And, and he didn't have a very glamorous lifestyle. He, he, he rented a bedroom in a house and, you know, he was doing gigs for $20, $30 a day and just trying to add up the money to pay his rent every, every month. And, but it just seemed like a free, it, it, it was the first time I got to see kind of an animal, leave the zoo and, and really operate in the jungle. And the, the, it was scary, but it was it was exciting and exhilarating. And then going back that following September to the classroom, I, it just never felt the same. And one of the producers I was working with said, hey, I can get you a record deal. I can get you I can get you $120,000 to write like 12 songs for these 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 young kids that that need some talent behind them. And, you know, without doing any due diligence, I was just so excited at the idea. I, I you know, put in my papers and I left. And I left my house as well, and I moved into a place that I had. And uh, I just spent the next year writing music, thinking that I was living the dream, not realizing that the paperwork wasn't solid. Uh, the money eventually didn't come in. Oh. And I ended up uh, <laughs> just digging myself into huge debt without having any means of earning money. So by the end of uh, 2011, so this, I, left my, I left teaching in 2010. Christmas 2010, I left teaching. Uh, and all of 2011 was probably the... the living in blissful ignorance, thinking that all this money was going to come see me at any moment. By the end of 2011, I realized it was never coming. The person uh, who had promised the deal had disappeared as well. Mm. And uh, now I was just sitting, sitting, sitting in an apartment that I couldn't afford to pay the mortgage on with $80,000 additional debt and no, no source of income and a lot of pride where I didn't want to admit to anybody that I had, I had messed up so bad. Mm. So I just isolated myself from the rest of the world and uh, you know, made some poor choices and how, how to feel better and, and medicating myself the wrong ways. But um, I spent quite a bit of time in bed hoping the cavalry was going to come save me. <laughs> and uh, spoiler alert, they never did. Yeah, right. And, uh, but I, I think that time did help me kind of heal from the betrayals that I felt because I, I did love deeply and with the people I worked with and not realizing that everybody that recognized my talents weren't always going to want to help me. Some would want to exploit me, which is a very important lesson for the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. So 
uh, you know, looking back at it now, I realized I was simply paying tuition for for the school of life. And mm-hmm. I had decided, hey, I'm going to leave the, the, the comforts of the zoo and, and the comforts of my uh, my secure uh, salary every two weeks. And I'm going to jump into the mm-hmm. jungle where I'm definitely more free. But now I got to hunt for myself and fend right. for myself. And there's nobody <laughs> there to protect me from all the all the predators. Right. There's a, a this uh, disembodied teacher named Emmanuel who uh, Ramdas met a long, long time ago. And she's, she said to him, Ramdas, just get with the curriculum, okay? <laughs> right? And that's a good one. Yeah. So, so much unhappiness. Uh, you know, if I, asking you what, are, you know, what was some of the triggers and your background and where you come from and, you know, you have a kind of a, a nice complex bunch of different things that make you who you are. Yeah. And, uh, but should I have been asked, okay, what was the trigger for you was deep unhappiness. This cannot be what it's about. It's the society, the parental kind of total wrong direction that I was carried in the on and on and on. And, and I was in Montreal, right, which is a, mm-hmm. a little less than living down here, down south in the States. So yeah. that w- was a huge thing for me. Sounds like you, and, and led me to really, I mean, psychedelics was a big thing. Of course, it is now, and it was then. And yeah. in terms of helping wake people up, and it helped wake me up big time. Music yeah. was another thing, you know, like you. I, uh, it wasn't rap at the time. It was Dylan, right, who kind of saved me because, okay, right, there's other people know this is bullshit. <laughs> I'm not yeah. the only, uh, and so on and so forth. So for you, you came to this, it seems like a bit of a, a very, very unhappy moment when all this stuff yeah it, it, it was definitely because you know i i had heard the jk rawlings commencement speech where she says you know rock bottom is a beautiful foundation to build upon mm. but the problem is nobody knows when they've hit rock bottom sometimes you think you've hit rock bottom and then you go even deeper and you just you know you just kind of like when when will this end and i think for me everything you know the the moment of clarity for me came when I simply had to take responsibility. So I no longer, I, I was feeling like a victim. Like I got betrayed. This person betrayed me. This person lied to me. This person broke a promise to me. These other people said they were going to do something and they didn't do it um, until, you know, eventually I came across the idea of like, well, you can't control what other people do, but you can control your expectations. And <laughs> You know, did you believe somebody's lies because they were a master manipulator or did you believe somebody's lies because they told you exactly what you wanted to hear? And because you wanted to hear it, you kind of skipped all the due diligence necessary to see if it, if it mattered. And looking in hindsight, you could always tell a person's actions scream much louder than their words. And m- most people who are, are disingenuous, you know, it, it screams in their actions. So I think when I got to the point of taking personal responsibility, it helped me find my personal power and i think that's the 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 big message even posting in unlearn um in the book is it's because hey we can't control what other people do we only have control over our efforts and how we decide to look at things and the expectations we had and and starting to look at where does the expectations come from like why did i believe the world would be fair why did i believe that if i'm kind to somebody 
they automatically will be kind to me. Like that doesn't exist anywhere else in the wild. If I, you know, if I come across a wild animal and I want to give it a hug, that doesn't mean it wants to hug me back and really trying to have a much more pragmatic, realistic idea. And that, uh, that really required me to shed idealisms and, 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 and focus myself much more grounded on realism. And there was definitely an unhappiness. And, but I think the moment I realized unhappiness is simply, you know, when the picture in your head doesn't match the picture in front of you. Yeah. And I was like, I can't control the picture in front of me as much as I can control the picture in my head. Yeah. At the same time, you probably could have put these uh, in this book. I don't know if you have a thank you section, but you might have thanked that person that screwed you. Look at the look at the beautiful manure that you had to work with. Look look what's yeah. in this book now, right? This didn't come from uh, thin air. So uh, and for me, that's true of absolutely everything. And, I get- and, and gratitude is essential. And I. I promised myself when I went through this, I went, so this was happening for me, you know, early 2012. And I promised myself I would get to a point where I'd be thankful for it to happen. Mm. Uh, by the time this book was, I, I actually self, self-published this book first before yeah. it came out to the publishers. So back when I first finished this book, I wasn't ready to thank anybody yet. But um, definitely now I'm eternally grateful for the experience um, and that person. Um, mm. I, I have no need to, to have that person in my life anymore. It's, it's, it's a thank you from afar. It's a, I forgive you from afar and, you know, go on with your life, live yours. Mm. Just understand there's no reason. I'm not, I hold zero resentment or real estate for you in my life. Yeah. You know, this thing you said about being, you know, being kind to someone, you were kind yeah. to someone and yet yeah. was, you were completely betrayed and you mm-hmm. can't walk around thinking like a wild animal, that, uh, analogy. Uh, mm-hmm. Thinking you're going to hug a you know a wildcat. Uh, at the same time, you know, there's a great thing in in the in India uh, concept, uh, and it's around uh, discrimination, right? And that is something great for all of us to develop. Discriminations, spiritual mm-hmm. discrimination, not just worldly discrimination. Because once you have spiritual discrimination, you are understanding that it is not correct necessarily to take an action uh, based on, and you understand that you are projecting so much that you cannot take this this action. And uh, and you know, and around compassion, there was a great Tibetan uh, Lama named Trogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Many people know, uh, spend time. His books are fantastic. Uh, mm-hmm. And he he and in terms of people wanting to do good, for instance, so they want to go out and do good works. They want to do do something good for somebody. They respond to somebody because they're in stress, and they respond in a certain way to trying to make it nice and so on. He called it idiot compassion. Mm-hmm. So there's a way. Yeah, discrimination is absolutely necessary in terms of just our day to day thing and. How do you develop that? Again, mindfulness practices. I don't. Yeah, and, and you hit it on the head when you mentioned compassion because I do have compassion for the for that person specifically as well because mm. I know they, they they weren't raised in an environment that I was raised in. I was raised in I was provided with a very safe environment where I was able to to, to trust freely. And I mean, the big uh, the big thing I'm proud of even after all of this is I didn't develop any trust issues. Uh, I just doubled down on trusting myself and said, hey, 
now you hope for the best, prepare for the worst. And if somebody's going to, if there's an opportunity for someone to exploit you, just prepare yourself accordingly and trust yourself that you can get through it because you've been through worse. And I do understand that this person didn't operate, you know, rubbing their hands, trying to, you know, hurt me or manipulate me. I don't think many people are, are trying to go around the world like that, but I think they operate with fear. And I think they created a situation that they, that got out of hand for them. Um, they uh, probably a clear conversation would have helped fix it uh but they decided to you know hit the jets and, and run yeah. and try to pile up more lies instead yeah. of kind of coming clean and i have some compassion for them for that but i mean i don't have space for them in my life anymore. yeah no uh, of course I, of yeah, course and exactly. uh, they're piling up a bunch of karma and, and we are all doing that on a day-to-day basis that's a whole other yeah. subject oh there's Completely. there's one thing here that i really related you know i think okay that's me too uh belly aching is still an art to me yeah, <laughs> and I complain about things that make first world problems look legit. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you only give yourself ten minutes to be a sad panda before I move forward. You know that's great. Yeah, I actually had one of those moments yesterday as well. Oh, really? It was, it was just just being here in Los Angeles. Oh, it was something super silly. It was like I had to go to an event around five p.m. and then I was like, oh no. You, you leave the house at 5 p.m. and the sun's in your eyes. So do you take your sunglasses? Because in two <laughs> hours, it's going to be dark. And then I got to carry my sunglasses around. I'll just make <laughs> somebody in the house. And I was like, see, this is a, a, an Uber first world Los Angeles problem. Yeah, right. You know, it's, it's like these aren't. And, and that's the thing. People need to understand these aren't problems. Most of the things we consider problems are really just dilemmas. You know, real problems are real problems, you know, and, 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 and these, these, these rarely classify as those. And uh, I, I try to catch myself. And actually, I do have a, I'm trying to be on a strict diet of uh, reducing all complaints in my life because there's, there's very little that comes from, and even with, with the belly aching. Uh, since writing the book, I've, I've come significantly farther to the point where uh, I'm extremely insensitive to any type of complaining or belly aching. And, <laughs> and I call people out accordingly. Yeah, I, may, I was at a uh, Wisdom 2.0 conference recently, a few weeks ago in San Francisco. And uh, do you know who Jack Cornfield is? I, I don't. Okay, find out who Jack Cornfield is, okay? I will. I'm going to write that down. Yeah, absolutely. He's part of the Be Here Now Network, which is what we're on. And this is a okay. mind-rolling uh, podcast from that network. And Jack has, and um, Ram Dass has a, 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 a podcast that I introduce as well. But Jack, Jack's just great around, it, especially around, I mean, he's great in mindfulness completely. Uh, but he's also great just at assuaging people's guilt tendencies about, you know, our day-to-day being human, which is a toughie. And he's, yeah. he's really good. You would enjoy him and anybody else listening to, although many people, because I have Jack on and he has his own podcast on the network. Anyhow, he, he went, all right, he did it. It was a closing ceremony kind of a thing. And, and oh, let's do a couple of, uh, uh, not vows, but... Um, commitments we're going to commit to a couple of things so you think of a couple of things and one of my things was okay i'm going to give up cynicism because mm-hmm. i like to use that uh, you know it, it's sort of my mo sense of humor with people or in podcasts or whatever but there's a way in which uh it it can sting you it can really sting you so i thought okay 
I walked out of that room. It wasn't more than 14 seconds later that I immediately did it, either some judgment of somebody or something or, you know, and I, holy shit, this is real. So yeah, these are good exercises to do everybody out there. You know, you don't have to, and you don't have to, uh, one th- I grew up um, Jewish in Montreal, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the things when they have the high holidays, the day of atonement, so they have they have a good thing. So you know you're going to give up all your sins and all of that stuff, and uh, they also have a little. So you can make a commitment too to give up blah blah blah. But then you have a little prayer that says you won't go to hell if you don't make it. <laughs> That's that was the big caveat. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, you know. So that's how I felt about what I. Oh, that's gave fantastic. Up. Yeah. Um, so fear. Uh, this is a good little thing for people to know. The gift of fear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think. Yeah. Go ahead. Talk about the gift of fear. Yeah, I think you know there's fears and phobias, and I think you know in, in my in my own journey to to kind of reclaim myself and and, and reestablish my foundation a, a big a big common theme was fear you know you know starting every sentence with what if what if people you know at this point people knew who humble the poet was i had been building a following but i wasn't making any money what if people found out i wasn't successful what if people found out i had to move back in with my mom and dad what if you know people found out that i didn't have any money in the bank or what if people found out that i was dumb enough to fall for a stupid contract and all of these what ifs created a lot of fear and through through my journeys and my readings reading realizing that you know fear is actually a compass and all these things you're afraid of you should face them as you know as we said earlier you know get intimate with yeah it. yeah get intimate with this fear and be like all right cool and i remember having those moments where you know you'd meet people and they'd be like oh, hey man I, I, I saw you online you're killing it i saw you you know you did that show in fresno california you know you're international now and, and me being like, no, you know, I'm, I'm struggling. I didn't, you know, I made 300 bucks this, 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 this month and mm. I had to pay for my own flight to go to Fresno and, 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 you know, things aren't good, but I'm going to figure it out and I'm figuring it out slowly and my baby steps will add up and, you know, kind of seeing the surprise on their face because, you know, nobody's that authentic and clear anymore. Everybody, you know, kind of hides everything behind the, the two magical words. I'm fine. And, Wait, and what do you mean me, anymore? When has that ever changed? Oh, uh, no, I said you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, in, in the context of, yeah, people, they're not used to that level of authenticity. And um, I realized that, you know, it never went, it never went awry when I was that honest. I think it actually emboldened other people to be open as well. And, you know, that's been a common theme with everybody who's who's read the book so far is like, you know, they realize that, hey, I'm not telling them my story. I'm telling them our story. Yeah. We're all in the exact same boats. We're all... Uh, we're all haunted by our regrets. We're all, you know, you know, stressed out and full of anxiety for our future. And we're all not spending enough time in our present. And, you know, that's everybody's story. You know, when, once you zoom out and, and, and take the details away. And for me, as I realized, it's just, you know, for me to be of any value to anybody else, I have to, to, to be honest with myself when I tell these stories and share these stories and, and live them and, and living my truth accordingly. And, and fear has always been, and that's the thing, it's with levels, even as you mentioned cynicism and, and saying, you know, I, I, I got judgmental. Like there's one thing to, you know, to be judgmental of the way a person looks when you walk down the street. Then there's also something to be judgmental of the news you hear. And then there's also something to be judgmental of the weather. And, you know, you can be judgmental of a million different things. And it's just, 
levels and then it's judgmental the other way when it's like stop stop looking at things overly positive like yeah, you know right. something same everybody thing. has yeah other everybody has something in their, exactly they all have something in their own story where they thought it'd be amazing news and then three days later it turned out to be the worst thing ever and and vice versa sometimes you hear something in it you think it's going to be the worst news possible and it turns out to be something completely amazing yeah there's a fa- there's all- there's a famous story by the way about that the farmer you never know. Son? Yeah, you, you never, never know, know yeah. right? The sun and the horses yeah, and the yeah. wild horses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, and his 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 conclusion is we'll see. Every time somebody, you know, yeah. that's great news. We'll see. Yeah. And I think that's the that's the important thing that I that and there's levels to it, is and it's very difficult, even you know, going through this book campaign and you know, working with a publisher and having goals and, and metrics and numbers mm-hmm. and wanting to be a bestseller and all of these things and, and being like, hey you might become a bestseller but that doesn't mean it's good news that might put you on the wrong person's radar and tomorrow something completely go awry (laughs) and the other way is like hey you may not but then just the one right person reads this book and 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 it creates a ripple in society beyond you know imagine and we we don't own crystal balls so we should save our energy trying to predict all this stuff and enjoy where we are at the moment yeah i love (laughs) i love the you made a you slipped in a little thing about you know the judgment thing when I was talking about being cynical and going out immediately yeah. and and judging the weather and I thought to yeah. myself, yeah, that's going pretty far out, but I have done it what I have done it what is going yeah. on one day after another is forty below zero what the fuck <laughs> And, and listen, I've done it too, and I think I only realized it once I came out to Los Angeles, a city with no weather. Yeah, it's right. The city is only built for beautiful weather. Like that, it was a windy day two days ago, and all the trees fell on the road. And I was like, this the city is only designed for perfect weather. Yeah. And and realizing that you know people's relationships to seasons don't exist here, so they don't understand that things come to an end. Yeah, right. an Yeah. End end. No, impermanence is not very. Uh, Proper. It's very yeah, improper in LA. Absolutely. Exactly. I live Meanwhile, there too, you're from so. Montreal, so like, you know, when it's winter, it's winter. Uh, yeah. No. And when it's summer, it's summer. I moved out of there though, and I ended. Well, I was in New York for a while, but I ended up in LA for 20 years. We had oh, wow. a record company there, so okay. I completely, you know, became an effete LAer that didn't know from seasons. That happened to me. Yeah, and that's the thing too. If people barely go outside here, anyways, and yeah. I think that's something somebody a friend pointed out to me. He goes, "Look, all all your Canadian friends that moved out to L.A. They said they moved there for the weather, but none of them leave the house, <laughs> yeah, or they go from their house to the yeah. car to the next place." Yeah. And you're like, "You're absolutely right." And I'm out here walking, probably being the only person on the sidewalk. Oh, that's okay. Um, here's a, a little something about the bullshit that's in the world. Uh, mm-hmm. It's another uh, it's for me as well as you. I think we have something in common. Another thing in common uh, of really not being very uh, um, happy about bullshit within ourselves or outside ourselves. There's a lot of bullshit in the world. You say I've I've spent the majority of my artistic existence trying to shine a light on that bullshit. Well, that's what, does rap music do that, right? That's perfect. The result of doing so required me to dig deeper into issues and myself. Um, That's, that would be my highest recommendation for anybody who is trying to get out of being unhappy. 
And, you know, the famous thing that our guru, Ramdas's guru, Neem Karoli Baba, said to us while we were with him in India, because he didn't teach, he didn't, there was no pedantic nothing, there's no books, there's no nothing. He turned in one day to Ramdas and said, Ramdas, tell the truth and love everyone. And Ramdas said, I can't do, I can't do that. The truth is I don't love everyone. And he went, Ramdas, tell the truth and love everyone. And he was, you know, there's different levels of consciousness and, and he was coming from the non-divided one. And mm-hmm. Ramda, it took Ramdas quite a, you know, a while to understand that that is the daily workings of what we need to do ultimately. It's what the, His Holiness talks about, you know, being kind and compassionate. He said, kindness is my only religion. And so... Yeah, that uh, tell the truth and and love everyone requires uh, what you're saying here, which is to investigate one's whole bullshit. And I say it again. I'm every podcast that I'm doing these days. We always come to the thing of okay, what the hell can we do? So let me ask you, what are you doing practice wise to be able to uh, to even recognize the bullshit never mind transform it um i i I think you know the first thing and it's so ironic that you brought up love and the truth i think the first time i suffered any great loss that had an impact on my uh, my self-identity and you know it was it was losing a girl i was infatuated with and Mm. she I, i felt she was the most beautiful girl in the world beyond out of my league and 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 once she left i felt like oh who am i you know everybody only loved me because i had this beautiful girl and i only knew myself because of that and i realized that hey i can't and then you know later on losing money and then losing a whole bunch of other external things and being like hey i can no longer build my foundation off things that people can take away from me i need to build my foundation on things that only i can forfeit and the irony of it it was i decided the only two things i was going to keep in my wallet were my ability to tell the truth and my ability to love. And mm, I actually, really? I put the word truth, uh, I tattooed the word truth on my hand. And then on the back of my arm, I had the whole world, whole world love. Wow. And um, the idea was my foundation now would be on my ability to tell the truth and love because nobody could ever take that away from me. I can only forfeit it. And now I can build, it's a solid foundation and that, that I can have an identity upon. And, you know, I love your story because it sounds like, hey, you know, he could have simply said, work towards loving everybody and always speaking the truth. Uh, Because sometimes we do have this linear idea of, all right, I love everybody. I'm always telling the truth. Now I'm just going to live out my days. And it's like, no, this is going to be a constant battle. And the moment you feel like you are loving everybody and always telling the truth, we are now going to, you know, hit you with that next level. And the biggest lies we tell are the ones to ourselves. Yeah. And, and, and the hardest person for us to love is ourselves. And, you know, I started to realize that I think it was in 2014 was the last time I ever had a New Year's resolution. Um, and, that, and that New Year's resolution was be a kinder boss to yourself. I was self-employed and realizing that I was <laughs> speaking to myself in such a way that I would never let anybody else speak to me. And then also in such a way that I would never speak to anybody else. And I was like, this is not helping me right. get anything done. This yeah. is not helping me grow. Um, and I think that was the, the last promise I made to myself, you know, during the New Year's times. And since then, it's just like, hey, make the promises whenever you got to make them. But that, that made a huge deal. And I think 
you know, once I, I, I pass that certain threshold and, and I'm able to love myself uh, much more unconditionally and learning tools. I just did a podcast recently with this brilliant man, Aubrey Marcus. I know Aubrey. I just did a podcast okay. with him recently, too. He's fantastic. And he just brought up the idea of, you know, when when the person you love is at their lowest or or, or, or does the dumbest thing or does or makes the biggest mistake, that's the time you should be sending them flowers. That's the time you should be giving them the hug. Give them the hug when they're when when they're at their worst, not when they feel their worst, when they're acting their worst, and then they'll know that they're actually being loved unconditionally. And I thought that was a, a, a beautiful idea that I had never you know come across before. So I think for me, it's you know, and and, and what you quoted earlier in the book, you know, I was I remember specifically you know when I first started rapping, I would, I'd be rapping about the conflict in Israel and Palestine. And, you know, being like, hey, I want the world to know about what's happening. I want the world to know about open air prisons. I want the world to know that these people get access to clean water two hours a week. I want the world to know all of this. And then realizing that at some point, and I think it was probably after uh, the, the conflict in Sri Lanka ended, and being like, hey, you know, all my favorite artists like Bob Marley or, or anybody else, they, they speak something universal and timeless. And, and I'm being very specific, talking about very specific issues that, now that this conflict in Sri Lanka is over, when people hear these songs, they may not connect with them because now it's, it's, it's history. Yeah. You know, whether that, that story played out the way we wanted it to or not. And it's like as if I, if, you know, rap, rapping about the stock market crash, like, you know, people aren't going to be interested in hearing about that 100 years from now. So I said, hey, let's go deeper. What what really is Israel and Palestine? It's about oppressed and the oppressor. It's about power. It's about control. Well, if I rap about power and control, you know, that is something that's still going to make sense 100 years from now. And then I was like, well, what's my source code going to be now? Is it going to be research I do on Google about the, the conflict? Well, I have, a, I, have, I have a very I have a much better source code, which is myself. You know, when am I the oppressed? When am I the oppressor? And, you know, having my own stories, you know, I'm, I'm Punjabi Sikh. Punjabis make up 2% of India. You know, my people are a minority in India. Mm. I moved to Toronto. I'm a minority in Toronto. Mm. Uh, amongst my peoples, you know, I'm covered in tattoos and I speak English. I'm a minority. I yeah. stand out in India. Yeah. I mean, I'm just as exotic to them in India as I am in North America. Yeah. And and talking about when I am a minority, but then also finding value in that. And, and you know, being in Los Angeles during the 2016 elections and, and, and somebody coming up to me and saying, you know, this will never be, you know, now that, you know, he's in charge, this will never be a safe space for us anymore. And yeah. me kind of being like, well, it never was a safe space. And, and why do we need it to be a safe space? And, you know, I my entire heritage has been thriving when it wasn't a safe space. So, you know what, this probably is a little bit more familiar to me than if everything, you know, everything was fine and dandy. Because that's when we start to, you know, the atrophy kicks in. And I think that self-awareness really helped me realize that, you know, you write from that point. And when you start writing from that internal source, that's the internal source that connects all of us. You know, whether you want to look that look at that from a, a cosmic perspective or, an, uh, or uh, you know, uh, a scientific perspective, you know, what our core and that the one cell that we were that continued to divide, you know, that essence is all the same for everybody. And when you tell that story, that story transcends language, that story transcends time, gender, and, and everything else and in between. And so for me, it was that and realizing that hey, I can spend so much time distracting myself. By, by calling out this external bullshit. Um, but really, I'm going to have the most impact was when I start calling out that internal yeah, bullshit. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because exactly. that empowers other people yeah. to, to start looking at their own stuff yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. Um, 
and and in the, in the same vein of uh, exploring our bullshit, uh, you have a nice little thing here out of the one hundred and one pieces mm -hmm. of advice. Uh, don't trust everything you feel, right? Yeah, that's that's something very very difficult. Uh, but so necessary to get at this bullshit. I mean, because if you talk about um, relationships, for instance, and love relationships, and um, or even work relationships, where you are like what would be normal, riding up a ladder. You know, I mean, I uh, the projections from the feelings that we have uh, because in, in some way in each part of what we're talking about, a love relationship, if you have a work relationship, it's a family relationship, if there's, we have desires and projections and they cause these feelings which come from the mind. Yes. Right? We go back yeah. to that thing. They come, they are thoughts. And yeah. uh, when we get at the source of those thoughts, we're able to say, hey, this is absolute bullshit, right? Just look at my motivation. I can see my motivations, and they're clouding absolutely everything, and they're causing a certain feeling. The toughest one is, of course, falling for somebody. You know, yeah. you just absolutely are so blinded in that moment, or yeah. for those weeks, or months, or a year or two, maybe even. <laughs> <laughs> it's just uh, or decades. yeah and you talk about it elsewhere in the books about uh, you know dependency you know that that happens between especially in a love relationship but in every relationship there's yeah you know and that goes back to this unconditional love to a place where you are doing this expecting a return it's like yes. putting money in the back in the bank of course you don't get much of that these days uh, but <laughs> expecting a return and that goes back to that linear idea, that linear idea that a lot of Western theologies preach, which is this, there's this beginning, middle and end. You do good, you'll get a heaven. You do, you do bad, you get a hell. Like there's this cause and effect. But when we think in cycles, we realize that this, there's, you know, this is eternity. There, there isn't a beginning and an end. And, and, and you're giving for the sake of giving and, and you're giving from eternal sources. So you're not really worried about what comes back in return. And for me, you know, as you said, you know, talking about not trusting everything you feel, just even again, going back to self-awareness, sometimes it's simply, you know, it, you know, this used to say, think before you speak. And now the modern version is Google before you yeah. tweet, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's knowing you're, you know, it's funny, you know, when I had a conversation, I had an argument with, with, with a loved one and, and her first question was, have you eaten today? You know, she's like, before we have this conversation, have you eaten? And that's very she, Indian, very, very Indian. But I think it's also like, hey, I don't want to deal with your hanger. Oh, I don't want you to say something you don't mean just because you're hungry. And then if I give you, a, oh. you know, if I give you a granola bar, now you got something in your stomach. Now you're, you're, uh -huh. you're much more centered. And, and, and it just kind of reminded me of this idea that there are so many additional factors like time of day, how, you know, the, 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 the barometer, the, the weather outside, um, all these things impact us and how they catch us. And, and, you know, they say casinos don't have clocks and they pump the air, they, they pump the room full of oxygen. They, they impact the environment to, to impact your thinking yeah. and impact your decision-making. 
And the more we become self-aware of how our external and internal environment impacts our thinking, we can start to make adjustments to that environment so we can have the thoughts that we want to have. Because, you know, elsewhere in the book, I say, you know, our thoughts are the brushstrokes that paint our lives. Yeah. Um, there's something here that uh, also that you bring up, uh, and it's around change and permanence. Uh, and that's, as you say, the constant in our lives, and that causes more fear than just anything else. Obviously, the ultimate fear is death, which you, you've said some stuff about in the book as well. Uh, but just the normal day-to-day change and impermanence in our lives uh, can create a barrier to, and you, you put it nicely here, if you have a valuable view of love and what and want it in abundance, the execution should be measured in how much love you throw out there. It should be measured in how much love you let in. Yeah, unless you're letting in, there's no, there's no out. <laughs> unless you've yeah. got it coming... But it's a it's a two. Once you get to a point, um, uh, I'm I'm working on something, and I've been doing a lot of podcasts around it, and working with some of my podcast friends, uh, particularly Duncan Trussell. Uh, we're working on. Uh, oh, you you should try and get with him. By the way, Duncan, you would oh, have a good time with I would, Duncan. I would love to if you can connect. Yeah, with yeah, of course. Uh, and it's around uh, moving from the story of me to the story of us, basically. And, uh, and all of the things, I mean, you're a, you had been a grade school teacher and and you mentioned this very early in the podcast of if watching the formulations of the me, uh, that happens as a result of all of the environmental factors. And of course there's also the, the karmic factors Mm -hmm. and, uh, watching that formulation and then, and then. It's it's uh, we have a film coming out this year, by the way, on uh, Ramdas's life and teachings called "Becoming Nobody," and oh, it, nice. yeah, it's really cool because we're just working on it now, so it's uppermost in my in my mind. But basically, Ramdas talks about exactly the things that we're talking about now: the identity we get, an identity, and we're and we get completely stuck in that identity, that role. And then we spend the rest of our lives, if we can get enough awareness and enough drive to cut through the bullshit that we just yeah. talked about, uh, then uh, we can become uh, the nobody. And what's the nobody? Uh, he, his quote was, only nobody gets free. Mm. Uh, so only, only once we identify with that part of us that is not the story, not believing in our thoughts, etc., etc. Only then can we really let that love in. And, and it's in and out at the same time. It's a we. And you mentioned that a little earlier. We get to the yeah. we, it's a whole other thing. And, and it stops when you start having that energy uh, going back and forth and, and creating the we, it is stop thinking about yourself so damn much you know yeah and no, that's you're, the you're biggest absolutely thing. correct like we just have to turn that m into a w go from me to yeah we. yeah then, then, uh, it sounds simpler than it is to execute but yeah. you know at least hearing the idea is the first step yeah yeah and then wanting it 
and having yes. the intention. I don't want to be a shithead anymore, basically. I know I don't want to be unhappy. And you start yes. to do the things that, that are necessary, and they include, you know, my, as again, I said before, highest recommendation is to, is to really work on mindful practices. And there's tons of them out there. And I mentioned Jack Kornfield uh, before. He, yes. he brought in, you know, a basic Buddhist breath pack practice called Vipassana, along with a couple of other uh, teachers, Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg. And they're my first uh, recommendation to anybody to bring in a mindful practice where you can really uh, do the internal search that needs to be done to, to, to just make the change, because it'll happen. Mm-hmm. It'll happen. Yeah. 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 I mean, happiness happens through it. So, hey, Absolutely. great to meet you, man. It was such a pleasure. Yeah. This is really cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I hope we, well, I'm in LA sometime. Maybe we'll bump into each other there. Let's, uh, let's try and plan on it. Actually, yes, we, let's, I, let's do it. we just did a, we do retreats in Ojai around Ramdas stuff. Teachings. Oh, really? Yeah. I just went to a wedding in Ojai in, uh, uh, like two months ago. It was beautiful up there. Oh, yeah. It's really fabulous, yeah. fabulous place. And uh, we'll have more of them. We'll try and get you out there, too. And I feel like I feel like that is my uh, my natural habitat. I feel yeah. like as I as I spend more years on this planet, I'm going to be a sandal wearing Ojai kind of guy. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoying himself. It's just it's, just, it's really interesting. And, and uh, yeah, I'd love to spend more time out there and, and, and meet the, the rest of your community. Yo, okay, it's a done deal. We're going to do it. Yeah. Um, Sweet. At the, you know, at this, do you have, is there any, I'd love to hear one of your raps. Are you still doing raps? Yes, I rap. Oh, yes, I have a, I have a quite a, a fantastic, my, my rap career is still doing very well. I just was in Mumbai. I just performed in front of 15,000 people. Oh, you're at kidding. YouTube fan festival and, uh, uh, yeah, I've been doing quite a bit. I'm just trying to think if I can find something that you know. Okay, uh, come on, find something because uh, and then really well. send it to me so we can uh, just a link that we can post on the on the show notes page. Which oh yeah yeah, I'll send you some music. I'll send you the I'll send you the last project I did. I dropped a project two years ago. I also shoot my own videos and I found and and I do stuff very cinema you know a lot of cinematography and okay, let's... I'm a big fan of film. So we'll, oh we'll wonderful stuff. Yeah, I have some. Uh, I have some really exciting stuff, and and I'll send you all the links. Okay, and everybody, you're going to find it all out. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash MindRolling. We'll have, as we always do, the show notes from this podcast and all the links to to get you introduced to everything uh, that uh, we are doing and everything that Humble the Poet is doing. So uh, I really thank you for being here, Conrad. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. And we'll see you all uh, next week on Mind Rolling.